The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. And hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead of us. New jobless claims increase for the first time in four months. This is the extra $600 jobless benefit is set to expire in just days. And Treasury Secretary Mnuchin says it won't be continued in its current form. So where does that leave the recovery and the markets? Dow's down 116. We'll debate. Plus... Senator Mark Warner on what he's pushing for in the next round of stimulus. And as a former tech executive himself, we'll ask him about these calls to break up big tech. And shares of Chipotle are slipping despite an earnings beat and record digital sales. CEO Brian Nickel joins us live for an exclusive interview in just a couple of minutes with what the fast food chain has to do next to keep delivering post-pandemic. But we do begin with the markets. Seema Modi here for that. Seema. Kelly, here's where markets stand at 1 p.m. Eastern. We're looking at stocks right now off the lows of the session, but still in negative territory with a Dow down around 116 points. Uh, the session low was down 174. The Nasdaq, the worst performer so far today as we see weakness in big tech names like Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple. That is reflected on the sector level as well, with technology being uh, the biggest laggard, along with consumer discretionary and communication services. On the upside, we have financials and utilities up just fractionally on the day. Turning to gold, though, hitting its highest level since 2011 uh, amid continuing its move to the upside here, up another 1.5%, but year-to-date up 24%. Kel? is a monster mover, and talk more about that, Seema, thanks. First, let's dig into these jobless claims figures. They are rising for the first time since March. 1.4 million more people filed for unemployment benefits last week. That number doesn't even fully capture the fallout from the pandemic. For more, let's bring in Steve Leisman. Steve. Kelly, thanks. Traditional jobless claims continue to run at a very elevated level, suggesting the labor market remains challenged. And another measure that hasn't received much attention shows the total problem is nearly twice as bad as just following that traditional measure. Federal pandemic unemployment assistance that was passed with the CARES Act has made contractors, gig workers and freelancers eligible for unemployment benefits for the first time. The latest available data show, as of July 4th, that is a couple weeks old, 13.1 million people are receiving PUA, and that's in addition to the 17.1 million on continuing claims, traditional continuing claims. Put it all together, more than 30 million Americans are receiving some form of unemployment benefit right now. And the latest data show that PUA rose by nearly 1 million in the last week, all of this painting a worrisome picture of the jobs market. Gregory Dako from Oxford Economics writes, the labor market remains in a precarious place as COVID-19 cases surge in some parts of the country and fresh lockdown measures are adopted in response. Job losses in the July employment report are possible. That said, we don't see yet any systematic surge in either indicator from states with surges in COVID cases or those that have had renewed closures. In the latest week, for example, claims were up in California, but down in Texas and Florida. What we do know, nationally, the situation has not improved, Kelly. And Steve, we now have a, kind of a trifecta of high-frequency numbers that are flatlining a little bit. We have the jobless claims, we have restaurant bookings, we have the TSA numbers. 
you know, none of which are showing the kind of improvement in the last couple of weeks that they were showing, you know, a month or two ago. And that, I think, would suggest, you know, the economy is losing a little bit of momentum here. I think that's right, Kelly, and I think you're right to look at those pieces of data there. TSA is running at 22 percent of last year's level as of the, the latest data that we have. It had been as high as 28 percent. Open table data is at 65 percent, about flatlined. Uh, the J.P. Morgan credit card spending data, something else we watch, has also going down. The high frequency data is in two different states. One is either flatline or declining. And the idea that Greg Daco from Oxford is warning that the July jobs number could be negative uh, is pretty stark. And I, I don't know the extent to which the market's prepared for that. Yeah, I know. It's weird. We'll talk more about that with our markets panel. Steve, thank you, sir. Steve Leisman. So with jobless claims picking up, all the other factors he mentioned and uncertainty over what additional stimulus could look like with Florida, by the way, recording its highest single day increase in COVID deaths. Will these market gains also stall out? Let's bring in Kim Forrest. She's chief investment officer at Boca Capital Partners. Randall Ely is president and chief investment officer at Edgar Lomax Company. And Lindsay Piexa is chief economist at Stiefel. It's great to have you all here. And Randall, I'll begin with you. Does the fact that the market is shrugging off this kind of flatness in the economy lately tell you that there's something Fed, you know, that the Fed is driving the rally, that it's not based on fundamentals, that it's becoming divorced from reality? What are your thoughts? Well, I wouldn't say it's becoming divorced from reality, but I do think the Fed is primarily driving this rally. Uh, for an investor, though, that's not necessarily bad. Uh, what a long-term investor wants to do is get safe long-term returns and to make sure that, he's, that that person is getting good relative returns. You're just not going to get uh, satisfactory returns elsewhere right now. It's, you know, it's fascinating, Kim, to hear it put that way, that, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing if, if it's Fed-induced. And, of course, you know, if you mean that in the much larger sense, I mean, their job is to respond to the pandemic with support for the economy. But there's a lot of liquidity in markets as a result. I mean, the fact that the retail ETF, of all things, is at a multi-year high back to November 2018 today is pretty shocking, given we know that this is one part of the economy that's overall hardest hit, even though a lot of the smaller companies aren't captured in the, in the index. Right. Well, I think, um, you know, investors aren't wrong to put their money there. People still buy things. I know that we've been um, uh, focusing more on, you know, what the shorter term uh, purchasing uh, prospects are going to be. And that has a whole lot to do with stuff you do in your home. And, you know, that's probably well represented in that ETF so, or in that index. So I, I think, you know, you have to go to where the spending is. And the Fed is providing a whole lot of liquidity. And uh, Randall did point out that um, there is really no place else to get these kind of returns. And that is what drives investing. Lindsay, let me bring you in on that. Do you expect the Fed to keep providing the amount of support that it is right now? I mean, will that amount increase like David Zervos has been calling for, um, especially if they sense that, you know, that there's some kind of issue developing here that we're that we're losing speed? 
Well, I think right now the Fed is likely to remain steady in their current policy position. Now, the Fed has been very clear that the biggest threat to the economy is a resurgence of the virus. So if we continue to see the data deteriorate, most of which has flatlined, we did see, as you mentioned, a pickup in jobless claims, but we have also seen some improvement in other data points on the consumer side, on the income side, in the housing market. So if we start to see that data deteriorate, it's very likely that the Fed is forced to step up with additional programs, with additional forward guidance, et cetera. But at this point, the Fed is likely to remain steady at the upcoming meeting. Yeah, which, of course, you know, there'll be plenty of focus on that if they were to do anything kind of to surprise the markets. Uh, but again, Randall, investors don't seem too jittered right now. Tell me, I know because you guys are tactical investors, where in particular you think are good bets right now? I think the opposite of what you see the market in general doing. And I think it's the, it's the, the traditional value stocks such as, uh, such as a Pfizer and AT&T. And this is Pfizer even after that big 5% rise yesterday. Uh, but the stocks that are paying high dividends and they're solid, you know, well back. Uh, these companies provide goods and services that we have to use. And they may not excite the imagination of most people, but in the long run, a stock investor gets the net worth of a company, you know, that person's proportionate share, and a rise in that net worth. And so we like to to buy uh, what we can purchase for low prices and just patiently wait until the market realizes. And what would, your, what would you say, Randall, to people who tell you, no, you, you know, we want to be in big tech, that's where the growth is, you know, that's where the future is, it's making the whole economy more productive. What would your response be as an investor to that? Uh, is, is that we're going to keep <laughs> those low-value stocks. Uh, <laughs> I, I hope they don't put all of their money there. And there's nothing wrong with, with, uh, with high-tech companies. Take the biggest five companies market value-wise in the S&P 500 that are mostly tech, such as Microsoft, Apple, etc. I mean, these are great companies from all I see, but no one should put all of their, their eggs in one basket, so to speak. And uh, in the long run, I think good long-term returns will come from a disciplined approach to paying relatively low prices. Kim, let me bring you in because you are uh, favorable to some of the names in tech. Um, again, maybe the yep. ones like Randall's describing that don't quite excite the imagination. Right. Well, I think my imagination is in a longer term play, and that would at this point be 5G. I've talked about this a lot, but it is a long term thematic play. And I believe that um, it is going to change, if not our individual lives, it will change corporations' lives to be able to get tons and tons of data on a lot of, we'll just say, information out in the field. And that uh, the infrastructure that needs to support it has to be built now. So things like semiconductors, some specialty materials, and certainly software that's going to run on top of that, those are all areas that I'm looking at to invest in. Great. And Lindsay, finally, before we go, is it your expectation that we might see a decline in the job support uh, for July when we get that number? Absolutely. I think what we do know for certain is that the labor market is incredibly fragile at this point. Now, yes, claims have come down from that peak and they were leveling off. We saw a little bit of a backup this morning. And of course, we did add jobs over the last two months. But taking a longer term view, we're still talking about a net loss of somewhere between 15 and 30 million jobs in the U.S. And as we see the cases of COVID rising across the country, particularly in the southern and western regions, 
This could very much lead to a second round of layoffs. So the labor market is not painting a very solid picture for the overall economy as we look out to the second half of the year. And we could start to see that weakness seep into that upcoming uh, non-farm payroll report for July. All right. Thank you all today for your thoughts. Lindsay Piexa, Randall Ely, and Kim Forrest. We appreciate it. Some communities have been hit especially hard by the pandemic. My next guest just introduced a bill that proposes nearly $18 billion in new funding to help communities hit the hardest by COVID-19. He hopes to get it included in the next relief bill. For more, let's welcome in Senator Mark Warner of Virginia. It's good to have you back, Senator, and welcome. Who in particular would benefit from this bill? And, and how would it work? Especially, listen, we are at a time when we've seen plenty of money thrown at plenty of problems in decades past. Tell me about your approach and why you think it would work. Well, look, the communities that I think we all know that have been hardest hit both healthcare-wise and economically have been Black Americans, Latino Americans. We've seen numbers that show you know, hospitalizations four and five times higher for Black Americans in a state like mine. Uh, our Latino population is about nine percent, yet 45 percent of the COVID cases currently are Latino. So you've got this healthcare disparity playing out, but at the same time. Um, we've got this economic disparity. We know the wealth gap that exists between um, black businesses, black families and white families. We've seen this play out as well. PPP, uh, close to $600 billion to support small businesses, well-intentioned. And for many businesses, it has been a lifeline. But because that program depended upon a business's relationship with a bank, it meant that many of, again, black Americans and brown Americans who own businesses, but oftentimes have built that business without an established banking relationship, right, right. Not, able, not able to participate. So we're looking now as these support programs start to wind down, we're looking at a, for example, of the 2.7 million black owned businesses in America, we've already seen 440,000 of them go out of business. And my feeling has been, how do we not just give a little bit of additional grant money, how do you actually increase access to capital for black and brown communities in America? And the tools and the, the distribution model is how do we support black owned banks yes. and community development financial institutions, CDFIs, 1,100 of them around the country. They are geared towards spending that extra time in uh, originating uh, loans into low-income communities. And our plan uh, and it has been built upon existing plans uh, that have been used for larger institutions, says let's go ahead and get about $2.8 billion in grant funding, some of this to do technology upgrades, $7 billion in yeah. tier one capital that dramatically increases the capacity of these institutions, and then $8 billion in a Fed-related uh, vehicle that would allow as they institute new loans to sell off these loans. Your previous guest spent a lot of time talking about the Fed propping up the market on the corporate side, I think it's also appropriate timing for the Fed to help these communities yeah. that have been disproportionately hurt economically. And the good news is, I know you're, you're moving me on. The good news is, though, that... Well, a three-minute answer, Senator, is a little hard for me great, to get another question well, in. Go ahead. Great positive reactions, though, from the, from the administration. I think the administration is inclined to be supportive. So 
Um, yes, and I think eighteen. Sure we laid out the whole problem. Yeah, and eighteen billion dollars. Listen, we're talking about spending two trillion dollars in in relief here. I'd be surprised if if people really came to blows over eighteen billion dollars for this particular program. I don't mean to shift so abruptly, but I kind of have to now. And since you're here, I do want to yeah. ask you about this issue that's right up your alley. Um, this it's the war on big tech that's kind of been building here. The drumbeat for Congress to take action against these internet giants keeps growing louder. On our air earlier today, social uh, social capital CEO Chamath Palihapitiya called on you guys, called on Washington to slow down big tech's dominance. Take a quick listen. We have five companies that are sucking up all the oxygen. They do that not just economically, but now as well politically. And in all of that, I think there is a huge incentive to legislate at a minimum to slow these companies down. And I know you've called on your colleagues to launch an investigation into Twitter in particular after that recent hack attack. So what further steps might be under consideration? Well, Katie, let's let's break this into two buckets. One of your earlier guests also talked about the enormous possibilities that lie in 5G. I was a telecom guy for longer than I've been a politician. I agree with her. 5G is a great area. But this is an area where America's frankly ceded its lead to Huawei and other Chinese related tech companies. We need to kind of build up our capabilities on 5G. On the social media companies, we basically need rules of the road. Again, America traditionally would have led in setting a regulatory framework. We've not. We passed on the privacy legislation that the Europeans have passed, GDPR, and California's passed. I think we need to do that on a national basis. I think we need to be concerned about some further consolidation. I mean, the Google Fitbit merger, for example, uh, we ought to take a good hard look at that. I also think that we need to have data portability uh, with these companies. If you're tired of how you're treated with by Facebook, you should be able to easily move your data from one platform to another and still be interoperable with the your friends who stay on Facebook. That was a tool that was used in telecom. When we had number portability, we ought to have the same kind of portability with data, for example. Sure. It sounds like you're saying, though, there's no sense that we need to go in after the fact and, you know, figure out a way to kind of carve pieces out of these tech companies and do something that would be somewhat unprecedented, but not completely unprecedented. Well, I'm I'm not there yet. A number of my colleagues, Democrats, Republicans like this doesn't break down on party are into the breakup mode. And you've obviously got a lot of um, attorney generals across the country filing uh, antitrust suits. Uh, my concern on that, if we simply come in and break up, that these American companies could be replaced by the Alibaba's, Badu's, and Tencent's large Chinese tech companies. But if we don't put rules of the road in place, uh, I would not take uh, the antitrust actions off the table. And my fear has been uh, these tech giants have been able to stop, whether it's privacy, whether it's having consumers know the value of their data, having this data portability, certain common sense rules. Of the Heck, we've not even been able to pass legislation that says if you do a, put a political ad on Facebook or on Google, you ought to have the same disclosure requirements as if you put it on CNBC. Yeah. That to me seems like it's a no-brainer. All right, Senator, thank you. We appreciate it. It's good to have you. Hey, thanks. Senator thanks Mark so Warner of Virginia joining us today. Coming up, an exclusive interview with Chipotle CEO Brian Nickel, fresh off of their earnings. Digital sales more than tripled in the second quarter. The stock down a little today, but it's up 35% this year. Can the company keep it up? And what's next, we'll ask. Plus, a world of hurt. That's how one casino exec describes Las Vegas. The casino stocks all lower today. We'll check in on the sector. And one hotel offering free rapid COVID tests to lure customers. Would you check in? That's ahead in Rapid Fire. We're back in two.
This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back. Shares of Chipotle are taking a breather today. They're down around 2% after the company reported earnings. It was a beat on the top and bottom lines, but the stock's been a monster year to date. Kate Rogers is here now with a closer look at the quarter for us. Kate? Hey, Kelly, that's right. Well, Chipotle, as you mentioned, beating on the top and bottom lines for Q2. Same-store sales declined by 9.8%, which was better than analysts had projected. And they've continued to improve, turning positive in June up 2% and up 6.4% month to date. Digital sales hit new records in the quarter, increasing 2 216% to some 60% of sales as consumers favor carryout and delivery in the pandemic. The stock, as you mentioned earlier, one of the best performers in this space this year, up just under 40% year to date. And joining us now with more on what the rest of the year has in store for Chipotle and the restaurant industry at large is Chipotle's chairman and CEO, Brian Nickel. Brian, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kate. Good morning. Uh, So let's talk about this digital number, as I mentioned, up 216%, the highest level that you've seen so far. What has new customer retention been like in terms of digital sales, and how can you continue to monetize that group moving forward? Yeah, it was really an amazing quarter from a digital growth standpoint and just the way our restaurants were able to operate in this environment. You know, as you mentioned, uh, we did over $825 million in sales and we brought in a lot of new customers to our digital system. And the thing that's great is those new customers that came in, experienced delivery or were ahead, they signed up for our rewards program. And now our customer database is up to 15 million uh, customers with a heavily, heavily skewed to those new users. And we've learned a lot over the last couple of months on how to interact with them to really influence behavior and better understand what they would like from Chipotle so that we give them great experiences. Your dining rooms are starting to reopen, albeit with limited capacity. But not only at Chipotle, at other restaurants, we're seeing kind of a gravitation toward carryout and delivery. Do you think that that is a changing consumer behavior, something that will stick with us even after the pandemic kind of ends? Or do you think that they will be ready to come back into dining rooms and when? Yeah, so I I definitely think you're seeing some of the consumer psychology. They want to make sure that they can still go out get their restaurant experiences, but they want to do it in a safe way. And, uh, you know, right now the psychology is they feel better about either eating outside or getting it to go. Uh, And, you know, we started to open our dining rooms. Obviously, it's got limited capacity. There are some folks that are totally comfortable already sitting down and eating in the restaurant. But, yeah, a huge majority are still uh, pushing towards the idea of takeout or eating outside, making sure that they really have the space uh, so they can feel safe. Brian, it's Kelly here uh, in the studio. I'm curious about digital ordering. It's something that Kate had flagged earlier when you guys were hiring 10,000 people um, and looking to expand Chipotle lanes and how much more labor intensive those are. Do you expect that the high amount of digital orders you'll have in the future will mean you'll have more workers, not fewer? Yeah, so the thing to think about is those Chipotle lanes come off of our digital uh, kitchen, which is a dedicated team and uh, it operates really efficiently. And actually every one of our digital orders, uh, excluding delivery is our best margin transaction. Uh, 
Um, so that is incremental labor uh, that you know is dedicated to really high margin transactions. And you know we love the idea of being able to hire people to support an access point that at the end of the day is incremental sales and some of our best margin transactions we can have in the business. Understood. Well, I'm also curious of some of the trends you saw in the quarter. Customers ordered more steak, more bottled beverages, and more burritos than usual. It said it raised your cost for food, beverage, and packaging. But why steak and burritos in particular, do you think? You know, uh, there's definitely been, uh, I think, an undercurrent. Uh, people want some additional comfort in their food. And uh, I think burritos uh, provide that comfort. And uh, steak, uh, it goes even, I guess, a little step further. And so as we've talked to customers, they love the idea of, uh, you know, putting steak in one of our warm tortillas. And, uh, you know, it's, I must agree, it's pretty special to have a burrito from Chipotle. Brian, to follow up on the menu, you're innovating even in this climate. A lot of restaurants have kind of taken a pause when it comes to that. You're testing out uh, the cauliflower rice. You've got the digital-only quesadilla. What's the reaction been like to some of these menu tweaks, and what else can we expect? Yeah, so, you know, we're obviously using our SageGate process to validate these new initiatives. We just uh, launched Tractor Beverages into all of our restaurants, so that's beverages that match our food ethos, which we're really excited about. And as you mentioned, we just put into test cauliflower rice, and uh, the response has been really, uh, really excellent. Uh, a lot of customers have been asking for us to provide uh, cauliflower rice as a solution, and it's very much on trend with how people want to eat. So, you know, we'll see how it goes in the test, but, you know, we're a couple days in. We're really happy with how our operators are executing and the customer feedback we're getting on it. Uh, and then, obviously, the quesadilla is to be able to do it in our digital kitchen uh, is something that we think is a huge unlock for us because it provides uh, a way for us to present innovation and engagement with our digital business that we haven't been able to do in the past, which is dedicated menu items. Uh, and we know one of the biggest requests we get is to get a quesadilla from Chipotle. We can do it in the digital business with the scale that we have, give people a great experience, give our operators the ability to give people a great experience. So we're pretty optimistic about where we can go with that. And then it opens another door of innovation for us on our digital business. So you're not just testing menu items, you're also testing out some store formats. We talked about the Chipotle lanes, you've got the pickup shelves, you've got the pickup windows. As the company continues to expand across the country, what do you think the store footprint mix looks like? Yeah, we're, we're really excited about our Chipotle lanes. It provides another access point uh, for our digital business, and it also gives us flexibility in the restaurants that we build going forward. So we really want to build a portfolio of restaurants that, regardless of what trade area we go in, we've got a solution to serve those customers best. So, you know, you, you heard us probably say we, we just hit our 100th Chipotle lane. We're in the process of doing some remodeling uh, to see how that performs. Early days, that looks very positive. But, you know, I think over 50%, 80% of what we're trying to put into our pipeline going forward is going to be these Chipotle lanes. And we're very optimistic about um, bringing that access point, that physical experience to life for people. But the thing that I'm really excited about is, you know, we think we can double our restaurant count, and this gives us more confidence to be able to do that and maybe even go beyond it because now we've got solutions that could be Chipotle only, could be order ahead only, could be, you know, an inline execution. Uh, we really can provide a Chipotle burrito experience just about any way you want it, and then we'll be able to extract, hopefully, maximum uh, Chipotle experiences out of every trade area in America. Great. Well, Brian Nickel, thank you so much for joining us. Congrats on the quarter. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Kate. Very proud of the team. And double the number of Chipotles. That would be 
That would be maybe enough for me to actually find one uh, when I'm on the road. Kate and Brian, thank you both. We appreciate it. Coming up, what Yelp can tell us about where COVID might spike across the country and the Fed's Main Street lending lag, the problems one Harvard economist sees in its plan to help small business during the pandemic. That's still ahead. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in a couple. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Dow's down 162, just off the session lows. Declines across the board for the major averages. The Nasdaq is the worst uh, decliner, down 1.4%. Retail, precious metals, those are a couple of your standouts uh, lately. Let's get to Sue Herrera. She's got our CNBC News update at this hour. Sue? I sure do, Kelly. Thanks very much. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. The NFL team in the nation's capital will now call itself the Washington football team. For now, at least, as it continues to look for a permanent name to replace one that is widely seen as a slur against Native Americans. Fans will be able to purchase new merchandise in the coming days. The head of the World, World Health Organization is denying accusations by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who said the WHO has been improperly influenced by the Chinese government. Meanwhile, 59% of Americans plan on canceling their gym memberships post-pandemic. That's according to a TD Ameritrade survey, primarily because the pandemic has helped them find more affordable ways to get exercise. You are up to date. That's the news update this hour. Kelly, back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. Well, casinos are in for a world of hurt. The summer has been a block bust for movie theaters, and one hotel will pay you for your COVID test. That's all ahead in rapid fire right after this break. And I asked this question yesterday. Is it just me? It's probably just, has it been a little quiet on the Taylor Swift front lately? Is she working on a new album or something? (laughs) Guess what? Taylor Swift announcing a new album today. She must've been watching. Who knows what else we'll say today that might come true. You don't want to miss it. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines are Robert Frank, Contessa Brewer, and Michael Santoli. Welcome, everybody. Let's talk some Twitter, which is seeing a nice pop in the shares today, but it was a mixed bag of results. The big headline, user growth, a 34% jump year-on-year in monetizable daily active users. That offset, it's 23% drop in ad revenue. The shares are up about 6% right now, uh, but the stock is aiming for its first four-week winning streak since Jan of 2019, and it's up 35%, Mike, in just the past month. I mean, 
it's just interesting to me that that is enough to drive such a big stock price reaction. Yeah, I think I think it was not really placed in that basket of uh, companies that were obvious stay at home shutdown plays, beneficiaries of people just sitting there with their phones. Um, so I do think the user growth was the element of the upside surprise. Now, keep in mind the broader context, though, when it comes to Twitter and its share price. It's up to about a $30 billion valuation. It reached about a $35 or $6 billion valuation shortly after its IPO. I mean, that's six, seven years ago. So it's had these periodic uh, phases where it would have these big rallies. People think they're going to figure it out. The key metric here, or the key phrase, is monetizable daily active users. How monetizable are they? Uh, is Twitter going to be able to succeed in getting traction on the advertising side with these yeah. new users? And it was interesting, Robert, because they did lose um, brands. They said many brands slowed or paused spending in reaction to the civil unrest. Um, they also said that that returned once the protest subsided. Yeah, here's the thing about the Twitter user and advertising side. So Twitter has clearly become more populated during the crisis. A lot, I notice a lot more people on Twitter. But it's also kind of become a little bit more poisonous and partisan. You'll just just post a, a little, a little yeah. bit. You know, you know, you post a picture here, Manhattan sunset. You get 20 people saying, you know, Democrats have ruined New York. You get the other people saying Trump have ruined the country. And it's just a sunset. And <laughs> I, I wonder whether advertisers, especially as we head into the election, are going to say, look, this is just not the environment right now that we want to be in. And so I wonder whether that's worth keeping an eye on, whether just the environment of Twitter is going to allow them to increase the ad rates and the number of ads they yeah, have. Yeah, totally fair point. We've all had that experience. Uh, Contessa, hold the thoughts. I'm, I'm coming to you for this next one. I'm coming for this next one. It, right. AMC is pushing back its reopening date from next Thursday to mid to late August. This was after Warner Brothers pulled Christopher Nolan's spy thriller Tenet from its August 12th debut. They've yet to announce a new release date. He's a big movie theater guy. This is kind of the barometer film. But Contessa, what I was going to ask you is, how comfortable do you think you and, and everybody would feel about going back to the movie theater of all experiences right now? About as comfortable as I feel getting on a plane right about now. Yeah. And they're going to, I know we're going to talk about casinos here, but what does it mean if you have to have socially distanced audiences? Movie theaters make their money by packing them in. Can you raise ticket prices enough to make up for the people that you can't put in the seat so that you can have social distancing? To do that, you're going to need a big draw movie, which makes sense why some of these big name movies are not going to be uh, direct to streaming release. Yeah. And Mike, not to be you know too vicious about it, but I mean, AMC has to make sure financially it can stay a going concern. So I'm surprised they're even going to try to open theaters this soon. I wonder if the mid-August date will be feasible or not. It's completely unclear. Uh, you know, I think if you're in that situation, you're doing nothing but burning cash. Uh, maybe you want to just do it as a gesture. Try to get any uh, cash in there you possibly can. The other issue is going to be, as long as, you know, as, if we have this prolonged period of quasi-shutdown around the country, there's still going to be no films to release, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no production going on. What does 2020, 2021 look like? It's not like there's uh, a lot of them sitting there waiting to get back in theaters. It's That's a, a great point, problem. right? Like nothing's in production right yeah. now. That's true. All right, we mentioned Vegas. Las Vegas is in a, quote, world of hurt, according to the president and CEO of Las Vegas Sands. This after they posted a 97% drop in net revenue versus last year. Didn't help the bottom line, uh, Contessa. They, I mean, they're putting up numbers that, like, your local casino would normally put up. 
And instead, the local casinos, in some cases, are going gangbusters and making more money this year than the same quarter last year, depending on where they are located. When you look at Las Vegas Sands, normally it makes most of its money overseas. This quarter, about more than a third of its revenue came from Las Vegas. It almost matched what Macau was doing. Singapore was only open for seven days and only to select members in this particular quarter. So there's a lot of focus on Las Vegas here. And when they start saying, there's no indication that the convention business is coming back and conventions are what drive that support for midwake hotel rates. Mm. And it's a gloomy, gloomy outlook right now. The other uh, competitors in Las Vegas Strip are likely to report something similar, even if they're not as candid about it. And you have to wonder about these other destinations, Kelly, like Orlando, San Diego, Chicago. They all really thrive on convention business as well and tourism. And if you're not seeing those air travelers come back, if you're not seeing tourists come back, it's hard to imagine how the destinations fare. And Robert, I mean, you're plugged in with the kind of the business traveler set. I mean, what what is the mindset there? Because we have heard, I remember talking to the CEO of one of the financial services firms who said, yeah, we're not going to have the same amount of business travel in the future as we've had in the past because we've learned we can do some of this remotely. Yeah, look, I, I don't see business travel coming back anytime soon. And part of it, obviously, is the virus, but it's also just what technology has allowed people to do. I mean, just take at the very top of the segment, which is the private jet business, which has traditionally been half business, half leisure. Now it's over 90% leisure, and they're, some of them even or even ahead of last year, just on the leisure side. So a lot of these companies that depended on, on the top business set are now shifting their model, and the private jet companies are not expecting any business from the corporate side at, at least until well into next year. Robert, here's my question. So my son likes to watch planes in the sky now, and we were thinking of taking him to Teterboro, but I was like, yes. I don't know if there's any planes that are going to be taking <laughs> off from there right now. There, there are a lot of private jets. So the private jet, so the commercial industry right now is running at about 25% of last year. Private jet companies are running 85 to 90%. Wow. So they're almost wow. all the way back, and new customers are up 80, 90 percent from last year because of all the leisure business. So a lot of planes at Teterboro right now, maybe even busier than last year. All right. We'll see you there with every other two-year-old on the block, I think. Um, This is an interesting one. Yelp searches for restaurants and bars could be the new leading indicator for areas on track to become the next COVID hotspots. Yelp data shows that the 10 states with the biggest spike in COVID cases in June had seen more than a 50% increase in restaurant interest, gyms, bars, and nightlife in May. Mike, it's both, I mean, I don't know what you do with this information because you know that used improperly, I mean, this could become some way in the future that people, the authorities say, well, we're watching the Yelp searches, guys, and sorry, we got to shut it down. Right. Uh, Well, obviously, it's a, a measure of Potentially, the overaggressiveness of some of the reopening efforts and consumer behavior was a little bit uh, too reckless, arguably. What I do think is uh, it also tells you, though, is and this is why I think the market is not more disturbed by the high case counts. It's like we kind of know the formula for getting things under control. Hmm. If you see that this is really the main variable that causes the big spikes or seems to be associated with it, then we know what behaviors to try to crack down. So it seems as if even though um, you you would kind of lament the trend, you'd also say it's the formula for figuring out how to unwind it. And it was also interesting to look, guys, at the fact that they can also they can count the number of businesses that are no longer on Yelp. I mean, they said the number of permanently closed businesses was almost 73,000 as of July 10th. And to this very point, restaurants, retailers, bars and nightclubs, beauty and fitness centers have been hit the hardest. And Robert, I wonder if that argues for some kind of 
you know, I mean, if bars and nightclubs are the ones hit the hardest, shouldn't they get the most relief from the government right now? Yeah, bars, nightclubs, and gyms. I mean, you know, there, there's no prospect for opening gyms in any of the Northeast states anytime soon. And I talked to a lot of gym owners who are just really, these are small gym owners who are just struggling because there is no timeline and no guidance on when there will be a timeline. And so, yeah, these are the gyms, bars, restaurants. These are the small business owners. And for a lot of these states, there's just no indication on when they're going to reopen. So I do agree that is the problem for where, where a lot of these states saw increases, but it's also why government aid needs to get to them somehow faster than it is now. Yeah, and restaurants too, some of the retailers. All right, speaking of which, one hotel in Maine is trying a new promotion to attract customers. It says it'll pay for rapid COVID tests for two adults, Contessa, if they stay for several days. Now, the other, there's so many interesting kind of quirks of this story. One of them <laughs> is that they, the hotel owners say, don't tell us the results because that would violate HIPAA guidelines. No, if not, if you want to tell the results, you're free to tell the results to whoever you want. They just can't go in into your records and find out. But the, the, did you ever think that we would be dangling medical tests right. as a way to lure people into a hotel? But they have to do it because the bulk of their business comes in from Massachusetts. Think about Boston people trying to get out of Dodge for the summer. And right now there's a 14-day mandatory quarantine. So you would have to stay longer than 14 days in Maine say in your hotel room, not doing anything before you could go out, unless you can prove that your test came back negative. And that's why this works in this case. Otherwise, apparently they just hold a big sign up that says that you can't get there from here. Yeah, I mean, but, but, but <laughs> here's, ahead, the, here's the catch on this. So they're actually the hospital that this hotel is working with. They do give you the test in 15 minutes. But what they said at the very bottom of the story, there's a 10 day wait to get an appointment <laughs> to get a test. So you, you can either quarantine for 14 days or wait almost 14 days just to take the test so you're not winning in the end despite this promotion. But if you, stay at, so the Elm, if you stay at the Elmwood Resort Hotel, Mike, then it's a win-win for them. Maybe they should say, listen, if the test comes back positive, let you stay for free for two weeks. Yeah, it's, I mean, obviously it's a clever gimmick. I think it makes sense. I'm just wondering from Contessa's perspective, knowing something about Maine people, do you think they're actually celebrating the fact that people from Massachusetts aren't coming as much as they used <laughs> no. to? I think I think that they're thinking unless they're dependent on that Massachusetts dollar. So those people are different than Maine as in general. And I know having gone to junior high and high school in Maine, uh, there might be some relief from Flatlanders that's coming in pretty handy. right <laughs> Or about maybe now. they're appreciating their Massachusetts yeah, neighbors yeah. for the first time. Right. It's bringing everybody together. Or maybe that's true. <laughs> yeah. Doubtful. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. That's it for Rapid Fire today, featuring Robert Frank, Contessa Brewer and Mike Santoli. Still ahead as Congress continues to debate the next round of stimulus. We'll drill down on why the Fed's Main Street lending program isn't working. As we head to break, stocks are at session lows. Checking in on the major averages, the Dow is now below 200 points is a sell-off of about 250 right now, approaching 1%. We'll keep an eye on it. We're back right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's a look at what's going on in markets right now where we're at session lows. We're seeing a little bit of a sell-off, a pickup steam in just the last 20 minutes or so. So the Dow is down 270 points right now. It's now a 1% drop. Same for the S&P, which is down 33. It's at 32.42. The Nasdaq is now down by 2% today. That's a 218-point decline, where it's back below 10,500. Uh, still, there are plenty of movers to the upside, though. Here's a few of them. Pulte Homes climbing today after beating on both the top and bottom lines. New home orders beat us. 
estimates and in the release, Pulte CEO Ryan Marshall said new home demand has clearly rebounded. Shares of Pulte today are up more than 4%. Whirlpool is also higher on an earnings and revenue beat. They revised their growth and sales guidance higher. I mean, the fact they gave it at all is remarkable. They moved it higher. They still expect losses for the fiscal year, though. But Whirlpool is trading up more than 9% on all of that. And finally, shares of AutoNation are also gaining on an earnings beat. Both new and used vehicle revenues were stronger than expected. The company is saying it plans to build at least 20 new stores over the next three years. So there's a positive sign in retail. AutoNation up nearly 8% today. Still ahead, the Fed's Main Street lending program has been operational for more than two weeks now, but it hasn't gained the traction that PPP did. A top economist explains why he says the Fed's program is too stingy and what needs to be done to actually help Main Street next. Stay with us. Welcome back. As Congress debates what more is needed to help the economy recover, the fate of Main Street hangs in the balance as a growing number of companies file bankruptcy. What's gone wrong with the Main Street lending program? A recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal points out the largely unused $600 billion program was too stingy in the first place for banks and borrowers. With us now is one of the authors of the op-ed, Hal Scott. He's emeritus professor of Harvard Law School and director of the Committee on Capital Markets Regulation. It's great to have you here. Welcome. And first of all, do you think this was the Fed's intent? So, Kelly, thank you for um, you know, having me on. Um, you know, I think we need to put this in further perspective that this money was appropriated almost four months ago in the CARES Act by the Congress, $454 billion worth, which was anticipated would back Fed lending for $4 trillion. Yeah. And as of the moment, small business, as of last Thursday, we'll get some more data today, has received one loan for $12.3 million. Right. And in the interim, many small businesses are fail, have failed, and they continue to fail. So this program is not successful and needs major revisions. The Congress should order the Secretary of Treasury to revise the terms and, and work with the Fed for a better program. So it's interesting because it was surprising to me it took so long for them to get off the ground. And for all the criticism of the PPP program, at least that got up and running very quickly. The money got out very quickly. And we've heard time and again business owners who those funds have helped stay afloat. But there was criticism of PPP. It was the wrong people took it, the wrong terms were this, the terms kept changing, blah, 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 blah. Do you, so the Fed wanted to do this whole comment period to make sure that it did it the right way. But Again, to your point, there's a difference between taking your time and learning from mistakes and between acting as if you don't want any of this money to actually get out into the economy. Right. And these programs are not the same. Okay, as uh, as you know, with PPP, there was a big element of forgiveness if you retain employees. Uh, Main Street is a lending program. It's not a forgiveness program. Okay, so there's no forgiveness. Um, So I and the other, you know, major difference is that PPP was designed for really small businesses, right. 500 employees or less, to cover just core expenses like payroll. Many, you know, businesses are over 500 or mid-sized, up to 15,000. They have lots of other expenses other than payroll. So those businesses could not use PPP to cover those expenses. That's why it was so necessary. And that Main Street should have been rolled out really in parallel with sure. PPP. And here we are almost four months later with one loan 
for $12.3 million. And I could still see people's point if they said, oh, but it's perfect because just as PPP is rolling off, here comes Main Street. Although, again, like you said, they're targeted at, at different kinds of of audiences, um, you know, you could see Main Street stepping up into the void right now. We're talking about a slowing of the economy. We're talking, you know, when Brooks Brothers filed bankruptcy, the CEO said, I wish there had been something for us to tap to avoid this outcome. So right now, the banks say it's not even in their interest to be involved in this program. What needs to change in order for more people to get help through Main Street? Well, two things have to change, Kelly. First of all, well, three things. First of all, the Secretary of Treasury has to be willing to put the $454 billion at risk, okay, to back the facility. So far, he's just appropriated, you know, $75 billion to Main Street. Of course, that hasn't even been tapped. So he has to allocate more money. That's one. Number two, the terms need to be improved. Uh, the minimum borrowing needs to be reduced from $250,000. Interest rates need to be reduced from 3% to 1%. Uh, and fees, which, uh, you know, could be 200 basis points, need to be eliminated. And just as importantly, because under this uh, approach, the Fed is buying 95% of the loan and leaving 5% with the banks. Well, 5%, you know, doesn't sound like much, but a lot of 5% add up yep. to credit risk for banks. Yep. So they're yep. going to apply credit standards to this. That's a great and point. So, if they apply the normal credit standards, most of the people who need this money won't get it. And the people who could back, could uh, qualify for the credit standards, don't need this program at all. Exactly. So, Professor Scott, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. We'll leave it there only because we're out of time. But okay. it's well articulated. I'm very interested to see if the Fed addresses this even as soon as next week. Thank you for joining me. Hal Scott, welcome. Harvard Thanks, Law John. School Emeritus Professor. That does it for The Exchange. I'll see you. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador.